So it's been maybe 12 years since I've played my last round of golf. Um, I, I played golf uh, in my 30s and 40s. I, I love the game of golf. I love like the history of golf. I love sort of the nobility of the game of golf. My, my favorite thing far and away is I get to spend, uh, I get to be outdoors in some beautiful settings, getting to hang out with three or four friends. I love that about golf. Um, but about 12 years ago, I hung up my golf clubs in the pursuit of becoming an Ironman and I started competing in triathlons and there just wasn't time enough for both. And um, I, was, I wasn't a great golfer. I, I didn't get to play enough to get really good. I, I played maybe four or five times a month. And um, I think the best I ever shot in a round of golf was 89. And I can remember standing over that putt in Wisconsin breaking 90 for the first time. I was generally in the mid-90s when I played golf. So imagine me, Paul Wilson, a 25 handicapper, telling Tiger Woods how to play golf. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I played some high school basketball. Again, it wasn't because I was really into basketball so much. In fact, I didn't even like basketball. But I liked hanging out with my friends. I loved away games, you know, on the bus, going to fast food restaurants, and just hanging out with your friends. I loved that. But I wasn't a great basketball player. I, I was a starting guard. But you have to know, I went to a really small private school, and if you went out for the team, you generally made the team. I think the best I ever shot in a game is 14 points, which for, me, which for me was like lights out. And the best part of it, it was during a tournament. And I had a great tournament. It was very unusual. It seemed like everything I put up was falling in. And I'm still in touch with many of my teammates from high school. And we laugh to this day that I made the all tournament team because they knew that I didn't even like basketball. I just had a good weekend. So imagine me telling Michael Jordan how to play basketball. I, I ran track. Again, it was a lot more about hanging out with my friends. I wasn't particularly fast, but I ran the 100, the 200, and the 400 relay. I don't think I ever won a single heat I raced in. So imagine me telling Usain Bolt how to run the 100-meter sprint. I've never played a single down of organized football. I've never stood up under center as a quarterback and taken a snap. Never once in my life. So imagine me telling Tom Brady how to throw a football. You getting the idea? Imagine me telling Elon Musk how to invent something. Imagine me telling Warren Buffett how to make money. Imagine me telling Ben Carson how to do a heart surgery. Imagine me telling Martin Scorsese how to direct a movie. 
or Andrea Bocelli, how to sing a song. It would be embarrassing for me to try to tell experts what they could do in their sleep. You get that? Yeah, so imagine like us at a party and Tiger Woods happens to be there and, and you look across the room and there's me, I got Tiger Woods in the corner and I'm, I'm trying to explain to him how to play a downhill lie. You want, you want your ball in the middle or back of your stance, you want your weight forward and, and you'd come up behind us and you'd be like, Paul, wave off, no, what are you doing? And then I might explain to him, you know, you gotta, you know, get that hip through, you gotta, gotta turn, you gotta keep your head down, Tiger, and, and you'd be like, excuse me, Mr. Woods, and you'd pull me off to the side and you'd whisper to Paul, Paul, seriously, this guy has forgotten more than you've ever known about golf. You should probably sit this one out. You'd be embarrassed for me. Do you get that? And yet, sometimes I think that's a little bit of how we treat God. When we gripe and we complain and when we're critical of like how he did something like when we worry and sometimes we get so frustrated that we get mad at him and we sort of give him the cold shoulder and kind of freeze him out of our life. Some people, they just walk away from him. Like this stuff doesn't work and they stop going to church and they stop reading their Bible and they stop praying because God, God didn't do something like we thought he should have. I mean, let's just take worry as an example. Todd Wagner defines worry. Worry is believing God won't get it right. God won't get it right. Uh, I would define worry this way. Worry is the fear that, that God won't do what he promised to do. I mean, we say we're Christians, we say we trust God, we, we say that the, the Bible's full of all these amazing promises that God has made, and yet we don't live like we actually believe them. We're afraid that God's not going to fulfill his promises. So this year, we committed to exploring the subject of putting down roots. And um, roots in the Bible are often about an image about what we trust. It's about what we believe. And so we committed that this year we would explore some of the foundational beliefs that define our faith as Christians. And so last week I introduced the first belief that we're going to explore. And I, I think it's the most important belief I think it's the foundational beliefs of all the foundational beliefs. I, I think that all beliefs of the Christian faith, they, they come out of this one particular belief. And that belief has to do with the sovereignty of God. Now, the idea of sovereignty, as we were discussing last week, it doesn't matter if we're talking about God, if we're talking about some monarch or some king some emperor sovereignty 
is the essence of absolute in authority, meaning they're the ones in charge. They make the rules. And it's unparalleled in supremacy, meaning the sovereign, there's no one above them. They don't report to anyone. They are where the buck stops. That's the idea of sovereignty. And so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we're talking about is his absolute authority and the fact that he's unparalleled. That's why God throughout the scriptures is described as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You can go up the ladder of all the kings and who's at the top? God. Because he's sovereign. We read this verse in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And most Christians, we think that the point of this verse is that God is the creator of the universe. And what I'd suggest to us is that it's so much more than that. We, we often read this verse from the perspective of what, what God did. Try this. Try reading it from the perspective of who God is. I propose it's a declaration that God didn't just create the universe. He owns the place. It's his universe. He just lets us use it for the weekend. And really in the grand scheme of things, our 80, 90, 100 years we might live on this earth. It's a weekend compared to the infinite eternal existence of God who has overseen all of history that's occurred in the universe that he created. And until we have created an entire universe, we should probably think long and hard about telling the sovereign God of the universe how to do things. Did you follow that? So let's, let's talk a little bit more about the sovereignty of God. John Piper, a popular thinker of our day, a pastor, he writes it this way. God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. Nothing can stop him. He's sovereign. I'm a little less sophisticated. I might say that God can do whatever he pleases. And we, we are not in a position to question that because he's sovereign. So last week, I asked you three questions. If you were here last week, I asked you three questions. And I'm sure that many of you thought I was being facetious, that I was just being absurd to try to make a point, that I was somehow using some, you know, public speaking trickery to get you to admit something. But I was completely serious. The three questions were this. Have you ever created an entire universe? Second question, has any parent, relative, friend, acquaintance, peer, or associate that you know personally and trust implicitly, have they ever created an entire universe? Has any professor, teacher, scientist, author, thinker, philosopher that you respect and admire, have they ever created an entire universe? Those are really important questions. But they're not a trick. In fact, what they are is they're a play right out of God's playbook. 
They're questions that God asks of human beings like you and me. So it's interesting. There's, there's several occasions in the Bible, Old and New Testament, um, where some people, they, they have some gripes against God. They, they don't like how their life is going. Um, they don't like how things are unfolding in their world. They don't like how it seems like God doesn't know exactly what he's doing. And so they, they're griping and complaining to God. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt any of these? You ever felt like your life isn't going like you kind of thought your life should go? Have you ever looked at our world and think, well, why didn't God do something? This is craziness. Have you ever felt like, you know, if, if I had been God, I'd been there earlier. I wouldn't have let that happen. Can you relate to that? So we see people all through the Bible, and, and here's what their experience. They're like, life's not fair. I'm doing my best. I'm trying my hardest. I'm trying to be a good person. And then this happens? That's not fair. Some people, their life was hard. It's like really, really hard, like one hard thing after another. Some people, they felt like their life was disappointing. Like, well, this isn't what I thought it would be. Uh, there's people in the scripture we meet that life wasn't going like they thought it should. Some people, they, they took great exception. They felt like God interrupted their plans or he hijacked their agenda. Some of them, they're like, God, where were you? Like you're way behind schedule. Like you should have been here much earlier and stepped in and done something here. God hadn't come through for them like they thought he should. This, this one is God, God didn't provide for them like, like they'd become accustomed. They, they enjoyed God's favor all these years and then it changed. And they're like, what? And there's some people, they, they're griping against God because he ruined the entire course of their life. And there, in fact, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of examples in scriptures where people are just like, I should just die. What's it, why even continue to live? I pray, I trust, I try to do the right thing, and then and God just totally ruined my life. So let me ask you, ever felt any of these? I'm serious, have you ever felt something like that along the way? And the reason I'm asking you to really connect with that is because we're going to look at three characters of the Bible and how God responds to them. And what I'd be telling you is that God would respond to you perhaps the same way. So we, we meet people in the Bible where God didn't do what they thought he should do or how they thought he should do it, nor when they thought he should have done it. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it one bit. Like they were really mad at God. And here's what I love about God. He, uh, he kind of lets them say their piece. He patiently and graciously just lets them speak their mind. I'm listening. Let me have it. And he listens to them for what seems like an incruciatingly long time. 
And then, then there's this point where God's like, okay. It'd be like um, having a three-year-old. You're trying to get out the door, and they want to eat their breakfast cereal in a coffee filter with a spatula. And you know that's not going to go well. But you're trying to be understanding. No, you're trying to talk them through it. And they just won't have it. They, this is how they want to eat their cereal. And finally, and you're a good parent, but finally you just come to a place and you say, that's enough. Now listen to me. And so there's, there's a couple of places in scripture where God says, that's enough. Listen to me. And I'm, I'm just thinking of three of the examples of Job, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Now, Job, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, they had never met each other. They weren't from the same parts of the world. In fact, they didn't even live in the same eras of time. But they all shared one common experience. And that is, they had all come to a place where God had had enough. And we're going to look at their stories just really briefly in an encounter that they have with God. So Job, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, all three were on the receiving end of God, having had enough. Now, I just kind of warn you, we're going to look at some long passages of Scripture. You're good with that, right? I hope so. You know, there was an occasion in the Old Testament where the leaders of the nation of Israel, they stood and read the word of God and the entire nation stood for an entire day listening to them read the law of God. So at least you get to sit, right? So Job, Job, Job had a hard life. In fact, you could say Job lost everything. He lost, he lost his children. He lost his health. And he lost all of his money. He lost it all. And he struggles to trust God in it. And the worst of all, he had some friends around him that didn't give him very good advice. And they're like, Job, man, hang it up with God. I mean, look, this is how he treats you. And Job goes through a slump. He, he's, he's mad at God. So we read this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, the storm of his life. He said, who is it? I'm sorry, who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He's saying, I'm sorry, Job, um, who's talking to me that doesn't know what in the world he's talking about? And then God says to Job, brace yourself like a man. Uh, stand up. I will question you and I want to hear some answers from you, Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? I mean, tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, right, Job? Who stretched out a measuring line across the globe? On, on what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone? He's talking about creation like he's building a house who set its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who was that, Job? 
Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed the limits for it and I set its doors and bars in place and I said, I said, this is as far as you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Who told the ocean where it could go, Job? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Like you press the seal and the clay and it's molded. Its features stand out like those of a garment. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you, Job? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me. I mean, if you know all of this, then I'll just stop talking. But tell me. What is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside, Job? Can you, can you take me to their places? Do you know the paths of their dwelling? Surely you know, for you've all, you were already born, Right? When all of this happened, you were around? You've lived so many years, Job. I mean, you're like 60. <laughs> Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Where, where is that, Job? You, you tell me, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water the land where no one lives in an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Who does that, Job? Does the rain have a father? Who's, who fathers the drops of the dew? I mean, who, who creates that? From, whom womb, from whose womb comes ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do, you re do they report to you, here we are at your service? Job? And God continues this use of creation as a way of, of making a point with Job about who he is. And then later, um, God then confronted Job directly. Now, what do you have to say for yourself, Job? Are, are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? And here's Job's response. I, I'm speechless. I'm in awe. Words fail me. I, I should have never opened my mouth. I talk too much. Way too much. I'm, I'm ready to shut up. I'm ready to listen. Did you get the spirit of that? Kind of stern. Isaiah, he also went through a hard time. He's the prophet to uh, the nation of Israel. And Israel had turned its back on God and, and God was judging them. And Isaiah was the, uh, the messenger of God's word to the nation and and he gets all wrapped up in his message and he's he's kind of ticked off at God so God says you who bring news to Zion you prophet 
Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. This, this is the sovereign God. And then he starts with creation. He says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's, who's held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord or as one of his counselors? Who gives God advice? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Who mentored God? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale. They're just, just the, they're just in the way. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon was like a place of prosperity. Had these enormous forests thick with these enormous trees. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations, before God, all the nations are nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will we compare God? To what image do you liken him? Do you not know have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people, they're like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and he reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows them away and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. That's, that's the sovereign God. So God asks, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these things? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength? Not one of them is missing. Everything's exactly in its place. Why do you complain, Israel or Jacob? Why do you say, my way must be hidden from God? He's not seen. He's obviously not paying attention. My, my cause is disregarded. God just doesn't care. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired. He does not grow weary. And his understanding we can't even begin to fathom. You get it? All right, one more, one more example. Now, for Jeremiah, it's slightly different. God uses a different picture, but it's the same point. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise, go down to the potter's house, the guy who makes, you know, um, vessels of clay, pitchers and bowls and plates. Go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessels 
The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, so he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. It's an important point. As it seemed good to the potter. Then the word of the Lord came to me and he said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, then I can relent. I can reshape it. I can relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you. I'm devising a plan against you. In other words, your life's not going to go well here for a while. Why? Because I have a point. There's something I'm up to. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Heavy stuff. Now here's the point. Here's a point. We could probably draw a dozen points from those passages. But here's one that I think is particularly important to our understanding of sovereignty. You ready? You're not going to like it. It's going to feel brash. Some of you are like, oh, I could, could you spin a little softer? But here's the point of those encounters. You ready? Yep. Human beings don't get to tell God how to do his job. Nor do they tell him where to be or what time he needs to be there. That's what it means to be sovereign. We don't get to tell God how to do his job. In those three passages, God is essentially saying this. Hey, when you've hung the stars in the sky and you put their planets in their orbits and you've chiseled out the great mountain ranges with your bare hands... And you separated the continents with the oceans by speaking the word. Then you can come and tell me how I'm supposed to do my job. And we don't like that. We, we don't like God talking to somebody like that. It makes us nervous. It seems really, you know, unkind or insensitive. It's a little bit too harsh for our taste. It sounds, like, it sounds like God lacks empathy or he doesn't care. You see, when God speaks with a slight edge to his voice, it makes us feel really uncomfortable. And suddenly it's like, we, 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 we just want the good shepherd God. We just want the, our father in heaven God. We want, we want the, the God who multiplies 
the loaves and fishes and feeds everyone. We want that kind of God. We, we want the God that makes deaf ears hear and lame legs walk and blind eyes. See, we want, we want that God. We, we want the kind and compassionate God who lets the sinner go free. We want that God. We're really uncomfortable to think God might have, I've had enough point. We get really uncomfortable to think that God might come to the end of his grace and his patience. We get really uncomfortable to think that God might come flying out of heaven in a righteous rage and put an inglorious end to all of the shenanigans that he has to tolerate from a world and from a people who are intent on sin and selfishness and self-promotion. God has had enough. We see examples of it in scripture. And believe it or not, that uncomfortableness that we feel, that's good. That's good. In fact, there's a term for it. And it's the term, the fear of God. And it speaks about the fear of God all through the Bible. Psalm 38, let let all the earth fear the Lord, a deep and profound respect for who God is. Let all of the people of the world revere this sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of being wise. All who follow his precepts, they're, they're smart people. And yet our world promotes smart people who are telling us to do just the opposite. And many times we're suckers for it. Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon's journal of his midlife crisis. Here's where he comes to the end. He says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. If I looked at life from all the angles, the end is this, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. You see, friends, I think that one of the byproducts of truly understanding the sovereignty of God is a deep and profound fear for who God is. Fear, not as in I'm scared of him. Fear as in I respect who he is. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. I, I don't think we've really grasped sovereignty until we've grasped an understanding of what it is to fear God. I mean, think about it. I'm not trying to scare you. But think about it, if, if he's truly who he's described to be, then he literally holds your life in his hands. He literally grants you your next breath. He literally decides if any of us see tomorrow. That's what it means to be the sovereign God. And he's not to be trifled with. He's not playing around. Although our world would like us to think he is. That he's, you know, he's kind of changed his mind on some things. 
you know, we don't talk much about the fear of God. It's not a popular topic. We prefer to talk about the favor of God. How God's just so nice and kind and understanding. Oh, just live any way you want and I'm good with it. And so there's a lot of favor from God. But it's not at the neglect of what it is to fear him. People work overtime trying to make the Bible say what they want to hear it say. To show that God accepts however they want to live. That he approves however they want to live. And many people selectively interpret the Bible to say that they can live pretty much any way they want as long as they're not hurting anybody. And God is okay with that. And I'm telling you, he's not. As much as we'd like to think he is. I mean, we like, oh, isn't he a loving God? Isn't he an understanding God? Isn't he a forgiving God? Yes, he is. He's also a holy and righteous God. And he's sovereign. And we must live in his grace and his love and his kindness with an understanding of who and how powerful he is. We must. We don't truly get God. He makes the rules. And it's not ours to interpret them to our convenience or our comfort. Does this make sense? God is sovereign. He answers to nobody. I'm looking at our time. I'm editing what all I can share with you. So here's here's what I want you to understand. Uh, Thomas Sowell is a wonderful thinker. He said it this way. If you want to help people, tell them the truth. If you want people to help you, tell them what they want to hear. You see, the risk of us not being honest enough with people about the truth of the sovereign God whom we should fear The risk is that someday they will stand before the sovereign God of the universe who in the beginning created everything. And they'll be hopelessly led to believe that it's going to go well for them. But it isn't. Not without the protection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And you go, but Paul, look at at what's going on in our world and what people get away with. And I'd say to you, just because God hasn't doesn't mean he can't nor that he won't. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not any, wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's giving us time to acknowledge who he is. And thankfully, the wheels of God's justice turn slowly, but they turn. 
And they will ultimately arrive at their destination. And you do not want to be found before the living God of the universe without the protection of Jesus. Without Jesus, you don't stand a chance in the presence of the sovereign God of the universe. Does that make sense? So what do we do with this? Well, I mean, there's lots of things that we could do with it. But one of them is if you've never yet turned to Jesus for your salvation, I invite you to do that today. Don't don't wait another minute. Don't risk another breath. The word saved means something. It means to be rescued or protected from the holy and righteous God of the universe who will judge sinners for having rejected his son, Jesus Christ. And there's a point that he's had, had enough. Jesus and Jesus alone stands between you and the sovereign God who bends his rules for no one. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to make it a matter of highest priority. Make sense? Let me ask you to stand together. I know, heavy stuff, right? Like, what? glad I came to church today. I promise you if you come back next week, I'm going to tell you of some other sides of the sovereign God that you might like to hear about. If I've never had the occasion to meet you, I'd love to make your acquaintance. I'll be here at the front of the auditorium following the service. Come up and introduce yourself. Just let me have an opportunity to hear a little bit of your story. Let's pray together. Father, just us standing here, closing our eyes and bowing our heads and talking to you in prayer is a remarkable demonstration of your grace, your love, your understanding, your patience that you allow us to come to you. And we come to you and we say we need your help. We need your help to understand just who you are and then live our lives in the peace and the joy of knowing that through Christ we are in a right standing with the creator and sustainer of the universe. We have no reason to be afraid of you because you, the powerful God of the universe, protect us. Make us a people who truly understand how sovereign you are. I pray and ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.